answer your question with that, it was mediocrity that killed this investigation, you know, uh, uh, cutting corners or laziness or maybe even not having wanting to get involved with investigating on your own. Like, I, Hey, I don't want to be the bad guy. I don't want, I don't, I don't want to get involved and, and roll red on this individual. That could be a, a colleague of mine, you know, um, because then they would have to live with that stigma. Like, Hey, you read it out on your own, but that was the right thing to do. Not the wrong thing to do. Listening to the Black and Blue Podcast, a discussion and celebration of the roles of African Americans and other minorities in U.S. law enforcement. Your host on the Black and Blue Podcast is Dale Peters, a law enforcement professional with over 20 years' experience in the business. Hop on board this Black and Blue train of interviews, current events, and pop culture conversations. So get ready, the Black and Blue Podcast is coming at you right now. Hey, Black and Blue fam, welcome to the Black and Blue Podcast, where we celebrate diversity in U.S. law enforcement. Y'all know me. My name is Dale. I'm the host. Thank you for finding your way here. Whether you're a returning viewer or listening, or this is your first time, I appreciate the love. Let me ask you to also click those like, subscribe, and bell icons right down here on my YouTube channel. That really helps me out a lot on those YouTube, on those, uh, YouTube algorithms. So if you're listening to me on your favorite podcast platform, uh, please, you can rate the Black and Blue podcast five stars there. And finally, make sure you check me out on any one of my social media pages for even more content. You can find me everywhere at Black and Blue US. All right, so now that I've got that taken care of, let me introduce my guest. He is recently retired uh, from the LAPD and his lieutenant over there, who's had his hand in weeding out corruption in that agency. So everybody help me welcome to the show, Lieutenant Leonard Perez. How you doing, sir? Good afternoon, Dale. Good morning. Thank you very much for this opportunity. How are you? Got it. I am great. I am great. Thank you for coming on yourself. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Pleasure. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I mentioned there in the in the monologue that you are retired from LAPD and, and uh, you know, you're out here in California with me. How, how's your day shaping out? How are you liking the weather today? Today is awesome. Awesome. Um, later on uh, with the warm weather, taking the dogs out for a walk, which is awesome. So we're, we're lucky the weather that we have in Southern California. Yep. 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 And it's, <laughs> it's November at, at the time of this shooting of this, of this show here. And, and a lot of other parts of the country are starting to get snow. And, you know, I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio. So people in social media, <laughs> Uh, that are still back there posting, you know, that they've got snow and this, that, and the other. I'm like, we don't have it here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. My son's in Illinois, so he'll be dealing with that shortly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My daughter is in uh, her first year at the Howard University in D.C. So uh, she, oh, wow. at least she's, yeah, she's got, she's got the, uh, the changing of the leaves and all that sort of stuff. And she's digging that and she's liking the chilly weather, but it hasn't snowed out there yet. So yeah, congratulations <laughs> on her part. Good job. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I got, uh, so she's over there. And then my oldest is a junior over at, uh, UC Riverside. Awesome. Close to home. Good school. Yeah. Great yeah. School. yeah. He, he wants to go into medicine. He doesn't want to be in law enforcement like dad was, but <laughs> well, the, the, the STEM is always a good STEM is always a good degree and field to go into. So kudos to him. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you mentioned that you've got uh, a son in Illinois. What, what's your family like structure like? So I, I'm divorced. Uh, my first marriage, I've got a son, Brandon. He's in Rockford, Illinois. And my daughter, Miranda, just recently moved to Seattle uh, after college. She picked up a job out there. Uh, they went to school out of state, and uh, they both uh, ended up get, uh, remaining out of California. All right. Well, yeah. Congrats, Dad and, and Mom. You know, good job there. You had two kids that, that wanted to go to school and continue their education, and then they, they moved on with that. So congrats there. Thank you. And, and I recently retired. I was divorced for almost 10 years and I got married last year, last August in Hawaii. And I do have a stepdaughter who's also an adult, Anya, and she's in right. Cypress College in the uh, court reporting program. So she's doing really well. So we're, we're happy for her and we're looking forward to her success as well. 
That's awesome. And congrats on the, on the new life and all that. And, and the new life of retirement. How's, how's that shaping up for you? Uh, you know, to be honest with you, the first couple of weeks, I would say the first month and a half, there was a really weird feeling. I felt awkward. I felt like uh, I wasn't doing anything you know, worth my while. Uh, I started reading a lot. I read about seven books. And then uh, it was a transition period where I really started enjoying it and starting decompressing and, and relaxing. So it's a good thing. Uh, I'm loving it. Um, my goal before I retired was to uh, teach part-time uh, at the JC level or the university level on uh, criminal justice. So I recently was successful in getting hired on with a junior college here in Monterey Park uh, to teach criminal justice. So I'm looking forward to that. And I'm also putting on some presentations uh, here and there with a colleague. Um, in fact, yesterday we just finished one at LA Haida. It was a law enforcement ethics and internal affairs issue and OIS protocols. Yeah. So we're staying what, what busy. Is Haida, what is Haida for our viewers and listeners that don't know? Sure. I apologize for that. So LA Haida uh, is an acronym. It stands for High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. And it's a federal program and a federal grant that's uh, throughout the U.S., that partners up with local law enforcement agencies to combat uh, crimes involving narcotics. And they're also a good uh, clearinghouse uh, when you have an investigation uh, before you serve a search warrant, you'd want to call them to make sure nobody else is investigating the same individual you are. So there's no blue on blue uh, issues. And they also provide uh, an enormous amount of training uh, in different categories, not just narcotics uh, throughout the U S yeah, absolutely. That's a great organization. I was involved in, in NARCs on a task force for a few years. So, you know, I, I know Haida well. So, Yeah, it's a tough job. Uh, they've got a tough job at the, ahead of them, but it's a great organization for anybody in law enforcement. So I highly recommend yeah. that they do some training. All right. How, how long ago did you retire? Uh, my last day, my last working day was May 12th of this year. I took some vacation days, and then uh, that took me till June 4th. So June 4th is my official last uh, working day on the books, LAPD. And wow. I, became a civilian, I became a civilian on June 5th. So it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good feeling. After 32 yeah, years, it's a good feeling. That's what I was going to ask you. After 32 years, that's, that's a big change. That's a big portion of your life. That's, you know, a large portion of your life. Yeah, I mean, being in the military um, before that and, and with my career, I mean, my life has been regimented, you know, my clockwork and, and, and uh, detailed. And now it's it, there's, there's nothing that's telling me what to do. And I, I kind of run my own day. And it, it's a really good feeling. I'm thankful yeah. and grateful that I made it out alive. Uh, you know, police work is inherently dangerous, but also more importantly, health wise. A lot of people have, have health issues and this. As you know, Dale, this career could take a toll on your on your cardiovascular system and other issues. So I'm yeah. very grateful and, and humbled that I was able to get out alive. Yeah, alive. And but in one piece, I mean, do, do you have any I mean, it's inherent to the job, you know, back issues, um, neck issues. Yeah, carpal yeah tunnels, you know, I'll, I'll be I'll be honest with you. I do have a, a lumbar L5 issue. You know, 30 years of wearing that Sam Brown and that vest takes a yep. toll on your body getting in and out of the car. Uh, foot pursuits, jumping over the wall, wrestling with people. And uh, towards the last year, I was a little bit stressed out. Uh, and it was a lot of personnel issues. I was supervising over 125 people, uh, deadlines and so forth. So um, I think I was wearing myself a little ragged. And I ended up getting a, a couple of checks. And I ended up finding out that my heart rate was a little bit accelerated. So I went to see a cardiologist and I was put on beta blockers. Um, so with that, with that um, um, and also the time that I had, I figured it's my time. It's my time to walk away and not look back. And that was the greatest thing I've ever did. I left, I left on my terms. I left, I left in one piece, and, uh, and uh, I'm so grateful for it. I can't, I can't say yeah, that enough. Yeah, got to take care of you, yourself, man. You got to, you know, got to do all this stuff because you, you know, you've got uh, at least another 30, 40 years, hopefully, God willing. Uh, so take care of yourself. Yeah, yeah. The goal is when you retire is to get as many years back uh, on your pension when you retire. So I'm looking yep. forward to 32 years of, of pension and enjoying that. Absolutely, because they make <laughs> those actuary tables thinking that, especially in our profession, that you know they only have to pay out for five to ten years because that's how it was for a lot of years for a lot of people. But you know now with wellness and all those sorts of things, uh, we're, we're living longer past our retirement, post retirement. So 
you know, these, uh, these uh, insurance and, and uh, annuities have to pay out longer. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, my last years, I was in an agenda with all my folks at work to, you know, get a wellness check, go see a cardiologist, sharing my, my short story with them and uh, kind of enlightening them and, and, and telling them, hey, look, we've got great insurance. I don't know why you're not taking care of this. Uh, there's no there's no excuses. Just get yourself checked out. So a few people came up to me afterwards and said, hey, I took your advice. and went to the doctor, even though nothing was I didn't feel anything was wrong. Um, but that they did find something and now they fixed it. So I appreciate you sharing that experience with us. So it's about uh, sharing that, that, that olive branch and, and helping out others. Definitely. Yeah, for real, for real. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, 32 years on the, on the job, what, what, what brought you on in the first place? What interested you in, in law enforcement? So I, I had no uh, prior family involved in law enforcement. Um, in high school, my senior year, I took an elective course and it was called Law Enforcement 101. I went to Alhambra High School, and it was put on by Alhambra Police Department. Uh, I remember the detective's name, Detective Gene Shepard. And uh, when he came in and told his stories and what he's been exposed to and all the trials and tribulations of being a law enforcement officer, it was, I got to tell you, it was very interesting. You know, and that's that was the spark. That's, that started the spark. I mean, I watched all the shows, Adam 12 and whatnot, but that, that didn't do it for me. Cause my favorite show growing up was emergency squad 51, the paramedic. Uh, so yeah. I, I was kind of, I was there with you. I was kind of gleaning. Hey, the fireman would be pretty cool. But when Gene came in, detective Shepard came in and gave his class, something started there. But I got to be honest with you after that, um, due to my height, I'm five foot four. I'm a sh- short statute person. Um, I, I came over a couple roadblocks cause after Gene's class, I applied to three different agencies to be a police cadet, and I, ne- and I never got selected. And I had a clean background, uh, never been in trouble, so forth. And that was kind of a hindrance. And then I went to junior college, finished junior college, and I still had that at the back of my mind. I started working full-time for uh, a bank, Home Savings of America, and I was miserable. And I knew I, I, that yeah. that wasn't a career for me. And... Home Savings was laying off people, and believe it or not, I said, man, I hope I get laid off because if I do, I'm going to go join the military. And I never got laid off. So that's when I started seriously looking into law enforcement. I started applying to about five different agencies, and that's that's what pretty much got me into LAPD. Okay, okay. And then so uh, LAPD gave you the call, and then I'm sure that was a happy point of your life, and, and you went through the academy and all that. What what was that like for at least you know the family and friends that – you know, hey, you know, our, our baby is going to be in this dangerous profession. Yeah, so I, uh, my father was killed when I was five, um, probably up to no good. Uh, he was estranged from my mother. They were separated. So my mother raised me. So obviously her, her concern was, like, why do you want to do this? You shouldn't be doing this. Why don't you go do something else? It's dangerous. Um, so there was a little uh, tug of war with her trying to convince her that, you know, everything would turn out okay. Um, so, and the other families and members, they all supported it. They were very supportive. The, the only one that was very apprehensive about it was, was my mother, but um, that you, that's a given. That's a given with any parent uh, when, when your child's going to go into a, a dangerous career. So I understand her. I was very, very uh, uh, um, sensitive with, with her needs and, and, and kind of walked her into that, we're going to be okay with this. Together, we'll be okay with this. And kind of through that, I know I could walk across the street, going to the market, and get hit by a car. So, I mean, there is a danger factor, but we'll be okay with this. And put it in God's hands, and we're okay. Yeah, yeah. And then it, it turned out okay. I'm sure she was proud of you in, in the end, right? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, she would, she would worry. My grandmother would worry. And they would always tell me, hey, I'm praying for you. Be careful, you know. Uh, but they were after I came on the job and had a couple of years under my belt. They were very ecstatic and supportive of my career, um, yep. as well as the rest of the family. Yep, yep. So, is is your mom still with us? She's still with us. In fact, she just took a spill the other day. Unfortunately, she tripped uh, on her robe and she took a hard fall. A um, couple hours in the ER, she got a little broken arm, and uh, I have her here with me and taking All care right. of her and monitor, monitoring her. So. She's, she's good. It was just a scary experience for her and everybody else. So, but she is still with me and uh, she slowed down a little bit and uh, we keep an eye on her between my brother and my sister. Okay. Yeah. 
great, great. And uh, you say you grew up in, in Alhambra, and I don't know about back when you grew up, but I know now it's predominantly Asian. Was it, was it when you were coming up as well? Yeah, so let me add to that a little bit. Uh, our family's roots are from East Los Angeles, and then when I was in kindergarten, right my, mom, yeah. my, my mom moved us over to Alhambra. And you're absolutely right. Um, if I look back at our, our class pictures from kindergarten, first grade, second grade, uh, me and my brother were the only minorities in our elementary school. Uh, I was predominantly uh, white. Uh, and then probably into the early 80s is when you started seeing the influx of the Asian community slowly coming in and taking over. Uh, my uncle used to have a barbershop on Valley Boulevard, Machine's House of Style. And I used to work at his barbershop. And if you go up and down Valley Boulevard, none of the businesses had any Asian influence in them. And it wasn't, like I said, until about the early 80s where you started seeing a change where the Asian influence started coming in. Okay. So, so you worked at a barbershop, so I see you still got the fresh cut there. Did, did you learn how to cut it? <laughs> I think that's a – no, I did. Actually, I was, I, was, I was, what, 10, 11? So I used to shine shoes and sweep up and clean around his, his barbershop. I, you know, I, I never had a, a, a father figure. And like I said, my father was killed early on. And, and my uncle, um, bless his heart, who's passed since then, uh, took up the role as my father figure. And, and what I truly learned from him is, is the true work ethic because he ran his own business and how hard it is to yeah. sacrifice and, and discipline for, for, stuff, for your family. And I, that was the greatest takeaway that I ever had from him is working for him and learning that, that work ethic. So I did, I never cut hair to answer your question, but I used to hang out there and help him out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You, since you worked there, you you know, what kind of, what the style should be and what, you know, (laughs) definitely. And it it was an old school uh, barbershop where all the customers were male. He had the barber pole light in the front. He had a pool table at the very back. He had a great clientele. Um, So kudos to him for, for, for doing that and getting that up and operating. So it's a great memory for me, a great memory. Yep. Yep. So when, when you came on to LAPD, what, what was it? Was it Gates that brought you on or who was it back then? Yeah. So the, our chief of police back then was Gates. If I look back at my graduation portal from the police Academy, uh, Gates is uh, handing me my certificate and shaking my hand. Um, yeah. And then uh, my first so, assignment. So yeah. When, when did you come on? What year? Uh, so I started the Academy in April, on April 23rd, 1990. It's funny how you never forget that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The exact date. So, Gra- so I was going to ask that because, yeah, I was going to ask that because, uh, the riots were what? 92 ish. Yeah. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? Um, so that day I had juvenile court. I showed up at seven 30 around noon ish. They're talking about, they're going to release the verdict. And then obviously everybody knows what happened with the verdict and it just snowballed from there. I didn't go home for two days. So uh, suited up. Um, my first assignment was a 77 division where the riots had, had started the flashpoint. Uh, but when the verdicts were read, I had gotten transferred to Foothill division out in Pocoima. And then that night we had a couple of uh, uh, skirmish lines and protests in front of Foothill and then about midnight, I got transferred to a strike team to go escort the fire department down in uh, southeast 77 and south central Los Angeles. And I did that for the next 14 to 16 hours and then went back to Foothill, worked a couple hours, and then finally got some rest. I think I slept in the car the first two days, and I probably didn't get home till about the day four or five, get a change of clothes and get some good sleep and then come back. And we were obviously a mobilized to a 12 hour shift with no days off all days canceled and vacations canceled. It was a heroin experience, but you know, with your teammates, you, you get through it. And with the leadership, with the solid leadership of our supervisors back then, our sergeants uh, who had that experience, you know, they kept up, they kept us out of harm's way and did, and did the right thing for everybody. Yeah. You, you said that they, you know, they had the experience, I guess, going back to the watch riots, right? Watch riots. And a lot of what I remember of a lot of our sergeants back then, they were a lot of uh, Vietnam veterans, you know, okay. serving in, in the various branches and having various roles. So, you know, um, it was chaos, but they had the calm to say, hey, relax, we're going to be OK. This is what we're going to do and start helping out. 
So it yeah. was it was a it was a harrowing experience for being a young police officer, but it was something I'll, I'll never forget. Yeah, absolutely. And working for LAPD, you've seen your your share of those over the years. Uh, you know, uh, civil unrest. The last one being a couple years ago in 2020. Uh, what was that experience like for you? So I was a lieutenant. Uh, I was assigned to Transit Services Division, which is my last assignment. And I was out in the field probably about 70% of the time. I was responsible for uh, B-Watch and basically a cadre of officers and supervisors. And our, our objective was to secure all the platforms for MTA um, to make sure that these uh, crowds and protesters didn't go down there and destroy property. So as the crowd would move throughout downtown, uh, we would take our cadre of officers and move to the next platform and monitor the crowd. You know, there was some name calling by the crowd, some bottle throwing and whatnot, but uh, never had anybody uh, come attack our officers. Uh, but I could see how volatile it was for some of the other divisions uh, with these crowds, especially uh, going down to the uh, Fairfax area where they torched all the police cars uh, the first three days. That was a harrowing experience for all those officers out there. So here we are again, you know, almost 30 years later that I'm out yep. on the field, on the line, but this time I'm in charge as the lieutenant and I had my own mobile field force. So remember I told you about those sergeants that kept the calm. That was my job now to keep these officers calm and keep them out of harm's way. So uh, yeah, a learning circle. experience. It was harrowing, but but we did it, and we got we all came walked away un, unscathed, unhurt. Yeah, full circle. Yeah, yeah, full definitely, circle. definitely. And the, and I'm and when the the riots happened again in 2000, the the last one's 2020. 20, I'm thinking to myself a deja vu. Maybe this is a sign for me after this that I probably think about retiring because I'm getting a little too old for this. <laughs> is, is is that the one that broke the back there? The camel's back. <laughs> yeah. No, but I thought about it. It crossed my mind, and I said, no, I think I want to work a little bit longer, so I end up staying another year and a half after. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. And uh, so you, you've had various assignments through your, out your career. Why don't you talk about a few of those? So you, you graduated. You went, to, uh, you went to patrol. What about after that? So, yeah, I'm very, hum- I'm very humbled uh, that this city and this organization gave me the opportunity to spread my wings, per se. You know, uh, LAPD has over 250 different jobs or positions for a police officer, a detective, so be it. Yeah. Um, so I took advantage of that. Uh, I worked patrol at 77th, uh, went to Foothill. I came back down to the Wilshire area. I promoted to field training officer in Wilshire. And I did that for about a year and a half. And then I went over to Hollenbeck on the east side and became a field training officer. I felt that Hollenbeck was a little bit slow for me activity-wise. I only stayed about nine months. So then a spot came open for Wilshire Vice and I applied. I was selected and I went back to Wilshire and I worked Vice for almost two years. And that was a, that was a learning experience that, that uh, was an eye-opener as well, being, a, being yeah. kind of an investigator as well. Yeah. Now, what what is Vice for our listeners and, and viewers? What is the Vice unit? Yeah. So Vice uh, investigates uh, community concerns, uh, house of ill fame, gambling, prostitution, uh, uh, establishments that serve alcohol, serving the minors, making maybe too much noise, serving after hours. So those are the kind of the they're all kind of pretty much low grade misdemeanor crimes, um, and it, it's crimes that pretty much affect the community members. They have a concern, hey, something's going on over here. So we'll, we'll do surveillance. We'll open up an investigation. And if there's any elements of the crime, then we'll go ahead and make an arrest and take it over to the city attorney or district attorney. And they usually end up filing charges for, like I said, gambling, prostitution, or drinking issues. Now, in back when you were doing that, it was probably a vice issue. But nowadays, you know, prostitution is more of a, a human trafficking, and I know a lot of agencies have their own human trafficking elements now. Is, is that the same in LAPD? Is kind of transitioned to a different unit? Yeah, I think you know, looking at now, that all agencies have gotten better at it because back then they were booking the the victims of the prostitution. Yeah, and the human human trafficking task force had the at the change the energy of it and. and portraying that these are truly victims. We're not going to book them. Now we're going to help them. We're going to give them the help they need. We're going to get them in 
in therapy and actually go after the Johns, the pimps. Those are the ones that are, that are creating this havoc. So human trafficking has changed the dynamics a lot in forth of helping these, these young girls or young men uh, that are prostituting to get them on that lifestyle, get them into school, get them in the job, and get them into any type of therapy so they can overcome all of those issues. So it's totally different. Uh, when I worked Vice, um, it was a whole different gamut on that, and actually social media wasn't even around back then, so it was a whole different, different issue. So it's gotten a lot better with the human trafficking, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. An important distinction that you said there that you mentioned is that it's not just females. You did said uh, young young men as well that are involved in the, as victims. Yes, there, there's males as, as well. Um, I know our I worked at Wilshire Division, and the next division north of us was Hollywood Division. And Hollywood Division had experienced uh, an assortment of prostitution with both males and females uh, along either Hollywood Boulevard and and Melrose Boulevard. So it's not just females. It's also uh, males as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, uh, after vice, what would you do after that? After vice, I had my eyes on, uh, the, the LAPD calls the elite metropolitan division and metropolitan division is comprised of SWAT, uh, canine, the mounted with the horses and also the dive team. Uh, before I even got there, I always had a goal of being a canine handler. Uh, I like dogs. I like working around dogs. So my sole intent was to get to Metro in order to apply for canine because that was the only way to canine is you had to go to Metro first. And Metro was comprised of uh, anti-level oral and also a, a PFQ, a physical fitness test. It was a three-mile run, which was time, push-ups, sit-ups, and pull-ups. And depending on what you produce – uh, you were given a score or a ranking, and then based on your oral interview, you were put in in a, in a uh, file as to outstanding, satisfactory, and so forth. So it took three attempts, but I got into Metro, and uh, it was a unique experience because they work all over the city doing crime suppressions. They do VIP details, like when the president comes to town or, or a dignitary from another nation. We do a 24-hour protection at the hotel they're staying or at the house they're staying. They do uh, bank robbery stakeouts. They do a lot of high-profile uh, training and uh, events uh, throughout the city. And they're mobile. They're, they're not just assigned to one area. They can go anywhere in the city where that's deemed. And then um, there was two platoons of, of Metro doing crime suppression. And then from there, if you wanted to apply to SWAT, K-9, or the Mounted Unit, you had to take another test and another PFQ. But unfortunately for me, Dale, I never got to K-9. Uh, there was a shortage in patrol, so they were sending people back. And they had told me, hey, you're probably going to go back to patrol in a month or two. And I had already taken the sergeant's test, and I had put it on hold. So I called our position control and said, hey, uh, can you take my hold off? And the next month, I was lucky enough, I was promoted and made sergeant and sent back to patrol. Oh, wow. That, that's awesome because, yeah, at least in my department, you hear uh, stories of other agencies. If, if you turn down that promotion the first time, it may not come back for you. Yeah, definitely. I, I took a gamble, and it, it worked out in my favor. Uh, I'm very lucky and fortunate. You talk about timing. Timing is everything. Uh, it was meant to be for me to be a canine handler, and I went and became a sergeant. And then my first assignment was in Northeast Division up by Eagle Rock and uh, Silver Lake area of Los Angeles. And I was there for about almost two years before I got transferred to Southwest Division in South Central. Yep. And I did. The, I was there for about a year and a half, and then I moved over to Central Division in downtown L.A. in Skid Row area. And I was there for about six months, and then I got deployed overseas with the uh, Navy Reserves over in the Persian Gulf. And I was gone for a year. And then when I came back, uh, I went back to Central. Nice. Sounds like you you've had assignments all over the city. Oh, oh yeah, and then, yeah, and I, when I came back from my deployment, uh, I was kind of burned out of patrol. Um, and I had a friend that was working in internal affairs, and he had asked me, "Hey, why don't you come over? To, they have a loan program." And I said, "I don't. I'm not. I'm not interested. I don't want to work that. I have no interest in it whatsoever." And a couple months go by, and then I'm dealing with my divorce, and my kids are young, and um, I looked into the assignment at internal affairs and it was 
home at night and weekends off. And, and I said, okay, I, I've got to do this for the, for myself and for the kids. So I applied, I did the loan program and I was offered a promotion and a position at internal affairs. And that's, that was my next assignment. Okay. And uh, what was your experience in inter- internal affairs like? I, I found out that I was a horrible writer. I couldn't, I couldn't write the reports because <laughs> all my stuff kept getting kicked back. You know, here I am, a college uh, a graduate, and been taking police reports for all these years. Uh, but it was, it was just a, a writing style uh, for internal affairs. It was just a, a, a learning their their style of writing. So it wasn't anything like punctuation or anything like that. But it was just a style of learning, and it took me about a year to grasp, you know, how they wanted these reports written. And um, I worked admin, meaning I did administrative internal affairs issues, uh, violation department policies. Then I went to the criminal side where there was allegations of criminal element. And then uh, I had a really good captain, uh, uh, Rigo Romero, who's now retired, who liked my work product and offered me a position at his uh, his shop, which was Special Operations Division uh, within Internal Affairs. And it's a coveted position where they deal with high-profile criminal cases involving police personnel and surveillance of those cases. Um, you're off-site. Um, your location is not disclosed and you're pretty much off the books at LEPD. If anybody were to look up your name working that assignment, you don't appear anywhere. Uh, it's cause wow. you, it's a deep undercover position basically. Uh, deep and then undercover there, and deep undercover in what aspect? Well, because, uh, like I said, on the department roster, the deploy deploy roster, your name doesn't appear anywhere. Right. So if I were to go to LEPD uh, computer system and look up Leonard Perez, Sergeant Leonard Perez, usually I would be assigned to a division, and it has a each division has a roster and everybody's name, their serial number. Well, when you came to look up my name, I didn't appear on anybody. It appears like I maybe I re- resigned. Okay. And so and they, they would it, and they would do that for what reason is what I'm getting at. So uh, because they're going to interject you into some scenarios. Um some tests, some bureau tests, um, you know, LAPD was under the consent decree. And as a part of the consent decree, LAPD was mandated to do periodic audits of, of personnel, whether they're random audits uh, or spontaneous audits. And it's basically just testing the officers to make sure they're doing the right thing. So if you were an undercover officer working one of these uh, random audits, um, they're trying to do pretty much disguise you that you're no longer a department employee in case somebody had recognized you um, to keep you off the books. And the whole objective is that is to not to compromise the status of these investigations. So that's why they take you off the books. And that's why you don't appear on any department roster. Gotcha. Gotcha. And uh, so you said you went over to the specialized operations and uh, yeah, special operation division. Yeah. What was that like? Um, it was another learning experience. Um, <laughs> so, you know, on, 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 on LAPD, you, your investigators are generally detectives. Sergeants aren't really investigators, but they are assigned to internal affairs. They go through a 40-hour class. But honestly, it's, it's not enough. Um, so I wanted, I wanted to learn my job. I really wanted to be a, a diligent investigator. So I put myself through a lot of courses on my own, a lot of them through LA Haida. And I really learned how to write search warrants. I really learned how to uh, do investigations. And I started picking up some uh, high-profile cases at Special Operations Division. And uh, one of them in particular that's public out there is the uh, uh, Detective Stephanie Lazarus case. Yes. Uh, she's no she's no longer an employee. She's serving a 27 years to life uh, term in prison for a murder that she con- completed uh, 26 prior years uh, back in 1986. And she had gotten away with that murder for uh, almost 30 years while working as a police officer and promoted to detective. And the, and the little story about that is when Stephanie was a brand new police officer, she was dating an individual. Uh, they broke up. That individual married another woman, and there was a, uh, a uh, issue with Stephanie over her ex-boyfriend being married, and Stephanie started harassing and stalking the new wife of her boyfriend. 
eventually breaking into their condominium in Van Nuys in 1986, uh, getting into a struggle and Stephanie end up shooting her and biting her on the arm. And that bite is significant because the coroner's office had kept a swab of that bite mark on file in the freezer for almost 28 years. So when the case went, when the case went unsolved for that 26 years, the bite swab uh, still remained at the coroner's office. A new, detect, a new set of detectives come in in 2008. They reopen the case. They learn that the bite swab is still there, and they retrace the case steps, and they learn that the father, her father, the victim's father, had kept telling the detectives prior to, you need to look at Stephanie. You need to look at Stephanie. She may be involved. And it fell on deaf that's, ears. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, I guess, yeah, it fell on deaf ears because it was internal, right, one of their own. Yeah, it was just dis- it's totally disheartening, totally disheartening. And in fact, the father, and I, I know a lot of this because I was involved in the case, not as an investigator. I did the surveillance aspect of it, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but the father, even he had even wrote a letter to, to uh, then Chief Gates asking him to look into it. He met with the detective several times in person, kept calling him all the time, and pretty much got nowhere with it. So the case went unresolved for all these years until a new set of detectives who had the right mindset and had the diligence to reopen and look at it, look at what her father was saying, and then retrace the steps of everything. So uh, when Stephanie made detective, probably in around 2000, maybe 1998, she was assigned to Van Nuys Division where the murder happened, and she had access to the murder book. So a lot of the evidence and a lot of the notes went missing. So and she had access to that. So that's unfortunate that it didn't catch anybody's eye, um, but uh, kudos to those detectives in 2008 that uh, saw that there was something there, uh, kept it under a lid. Uh, they never told anybody. They didn't even tell their captain because they didn't want it to get it compromised. And it went to directly to the chief of police office and they contacted our office, special operations division. And where my role and my colleague's role was to obtain a sub Rosa DNA sample from her. And that that's kind of impossible to do, but uh, it was a 24 hour surveillance on her. And they were able, one of the, one of the surveillance officers was able to get a DNA sample from a, a food item at a Costco and then that was taken to the lab and, and they were, the lab was able to match the DNA from that food item to the bite mark that had occurred 26 prior to. So the uh, investigating entity was robbery homicide and they were able to solidify that, uh, present the case and they got a filing I went to court and she was convicted of the murder. Wow. Wow. And when, when was she convicted? When did that go through? Um, I think everything was in 2012 is actually when the, when the trial ended. I'll have to look at There's a book out there called The Lazarus Files by um, McHugh. He writes the whole story about it. It's a good read. Um, yeah, so 2012, she got 27 years to life. 27 to life. And yeah. she's serving it today. Good work there. Definitely. Yeah, Definitely. Definitely. Did uh, did her fa- did uh, the victim's father uh, get to see that conviction? Yes, yes. So he's still with us. Good, for yeah. him. good for him. Definitely. Did, were the uh, were the ex or the or the victim were they affiliated with the LAPD or did they meet on the job or anything like that? No, nothing at nothing at all. And and to, to, to answer your question, what that it was mediocrity that killed this investigation. You know. Uh, uh, cutting corners or laziness or maybe even not having wanting to get involved with investigating on your own. Like, I, Hey, I don't want to be the bad guy. I don't want, I don't, I don't want to get involved and, and roll red on this individual. That could be a, a colleague of mine, you know? Um, yeah. Because then they would have to live with that stigma. Like, Hey, you read it out on your own, but that was the right thing to do. Not the wrong thing to do. And exactly. uh, I, I feel, I feel really bad for that father because he was, he was a prominent dentist in Tucson, and uh, and he fought for his daughter for all these years, and and just fell on deaf ears. So it's a sad situation. Very sad, and and that's one of the the stigmas to law enforcement 
uh, from the general public is that, you know, when it comes down to it, we don't investigate our own. And that's when transparency issues and all that sort of stuff comes about. And, uh, where, you know, a lot of agencies are trying to change that narrative, right? Exactly. So now in this day and age, everything's, you know, digitalized, uh, you know, your chrono is on, on digital, on a digital program. So me as a, if I were a CEO or as a Lieutenant, I can log on and check my detectives chrono to make sure that, you know, they're keeping everything up to speed and whatnot. You know, unfortunately back then with the Lazarus file, everything was handwritten in the chrono. Um, so it was a matter of those detectives conveying to their supervisors, yeah, we're doing this, yeah, we're doing that. But nowadays it's a lot better with transparency where I can log on and check my employees' chronos to make sure they are doing what they're saying. Right, right. And also, you know, that stigma in law enforcement uh, altogether of internal affairs, right? It's, you know, a lot of people, you, know, you, you got to take that job seriously and, and maybe a lot of people don't want to do that job, right? Is, is there a stigma yeah. attached to it? Definitely a stigma. Nobody wants to sit and have lunch with me. I lo- you lose a, some of your friends. Uh, they, they, there's a little name calling in there, like, we better watch out. Be quiet. Here comes Perez. You know, he worked IA before. Watch what you're doing. Whatnot. So there is a stigma behind it. Uh, but, you know, I took that job serious. I was fortunate that Captain Romero had offered me that position, and that's why I said I, I took it upon myself to put myself through all those courses to be a diligent investigator, even though I was never a detective, um, because I know when I turned in my work product, I didn't want to get a kickback or I don't want to be embarrassed on the stand testifying that I, I screwed up somewhere. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a learning curve that I've always tell my subordinates, uh, your work product, you never know where you can end up. You could be in an appeals court or Supreme Court. So you got to make sure that it's a, it's a complete product. Absolutely. Yep. So we, we talked before we, we started the program here about when you first came on, uh, you know, upper, the upper management was looked a little different than maybe it does today. Uh, you talked about uh, your captain Romero. Sounds like he was Latino as well. Um, what are the changes you've seen in, in LAPD over the years, especially on the, on the uh, management side? Yeah, command, command management, command staff, as we call them, uh, back in the 90s were all male white. Majority were all male white. There was maybe one female captain, if I recall, and then shortly after we had the first female commander. Um, there were no Asians, there was no Latinos, uh, no blacks. And then uh, the transition happened probably probably shortly after the rise in 92 where you started seeing uh, promotions of uh, minorities, Asians, females, Compared to today now, it's a whole different gamut. Uh, we've got a lot more minority uh, command staff, females, including Asians. If you go to LEPD.org and, and go to command staff, and it has all their profiles and their pictures and their bios, completely different from 1990. Because back in 1990s, it was, it was all male white. So diversity is alive and well in LAPD. Uh, they're in the right direction. And they're promoting, promoting some some right, solid people that should be there, uh, regardless of their background, genders, or ethnicities. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, all of us in you know across the nation in this profession are hurting for bodies right now. And when you when you're looking to uh, diversify your force, you know, with other you know, with blacks or or Latinos or what have you, and we don't see those same positions that look like us in in uh, command staff, you know. Maybe that can turn you off and maybe we want to look somewhere else. So it's good that, you know, there is diverse diversity on the command staffs of, you know, your agency and a lot of other agencies too. Yeah. Yeah. Diversity in command staff, uh, diversity in a lot of lieutenants now. Um, that was totally different from 1990 when I, when I first came on uh, and definitely a lot of diversity with your sergeants and detectives. So uh, LEP is going in the right direction. Um, hopefully they stay uh, true to that. And I don't think they'll go other reverse that and go backwards, but uh, it is, is, it is a lot better uh, and totally different uh, than 1990. I mean, 1990, it was like a whole different world. Uh, what I used to tell my subordinates about, uh, uh, you know, they would ask me, what, how can I prepare to study? What's a good read? Um, I remember reading a book called Official Negligence by Lou Cannon from the LA Times, and it talks about the failures of management and command staff uh, leading up to the 92 riots. And it touches on a little bit about command staff and uh, who they were back then. 
Um, it's a good read. I recommend it to everybody. Um, and, uh, tell my, my support. It's, um, it's a, it's a good challenge for them, um, for them to be, step up and be serving leaders. And it's a good, uh, background story that'll help them uh, learn the process. Yeah, no doubt. And also in the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that your little, uh, didn't want to say that you're, uh, shorter in stature. <laughs> how, how was that oh, experience? Yeah. yeah. How's that experience been with you? Uh, you know, especially in patrol. Did you get a lot of, oh. did you find a lot of people challenging you or what was that like? You know, Dale, come on. You already know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Uh, yeah. They would look down at me and say, you little man, you ain't taking me to jail. Screw that. And then turn and walk away. Right. And he, that individual committed a, a, a domestic violence or an ADW or a battery whatsoever. Uh, you know, I got it. I got it. I got to arrest you. You know, you can't let them yeah. walk away. So you, you, you try to talk them in the, the police car and encourage them. And at the end of the day, it didn't work. I ended up getting a little tussle here, a little tussle there. So I was challenged a lot compared to my brothers and sisters that were standing six foot tall and above, you know, yeah. where, where they would tell them, Hey, you're going to jail. And they would turn around and put their hands behind the back of me. I got challenged all the time. Yeah. Um, but I took, a, I took an extra ordinary amount of time to, uh, dissuade him and try to talk him into it. Sometimes it worked, and the majority of the time it didn't work. And I'll have to, you know, grab their wrist or whatnot, and they'll pull away and say, "Come on, man, don't do this. We don't need to do this." So I, I got challenged a lot. I got challenged both by males and females. Yeah, yeah. Wow, by females too, huh? Yeah, definitely. Especially if they were had a little had a little alcohol in their system. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, stand by. Oh, they were, yeah. yeah. And they'd be swinging their arms and whatnot, like, come on, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. So, yeah, I, I did get challenged a lot due to my height, definitely. Yep. And then you had to lay down the law and let them know, uh, hey, <laughs> I'm not the one, right? Yeah. So, listen, yeah. 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 But, you know, Dale, I've always treated everybody with respect, even if I had to use a force or if I took somebody down to the ground. And after, during, and during the booking process, Treated with the utmost respect, um, took him to jail, booked him, and continued to call him sir, ma'am. And you know, at the end of the day, when you walk him into the cell, they would turn. They would turn to me. About fifty percent of them would say, "You know, hey, I'm sorry for my behavior. I was wrong. You know, thanks for treating me fair. Thanks for treating me with respect." So, yeah, yeah. And you know, I tell them, look, I, I don't want to do this. I don't. My job is to do it the easy way. You know. So, yeah. But I appreciate it. Yep, yep. You know, I found that uh, you know, and you know, I'm I'm six foot, but uh, you know, it's the opposite. And when you're dealing with a suspect that you got to take in custody, is usually the the big guys, you know, that are you know six five, you know, three hundred pounds. They're not the ones that want to fight you. It's always the smaller guys that want to fight you. You know, <laughs> so it's always the opposite that you know, in my experience. Definitely, definitely, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was an experience, but. Uh, with a partner, you know, we worked off each other. We did our best to calm the situation and, and get him in handcuffs yes. um, as safely as possible. What we used to call back in the day, verbal judo. Now they call it de-escalation. That, that's always the best, you know, uh, track more flies with honey than vinegar sort of thing. And yeah, talk them into the cup. Yeah, I, I, didn't even, I didn't even got into extreme to say, look, listen, buddy, look, you're hungry. You know, on the way, I'll get you a burger. When we get to jail, I'll get you that burger, you know. So, you know, little things like that, sometimes it works. Yeah, so yeah. You, you, do what, you do what you do to, to uh, slow down the, the, the intensity of that situation so nobody gets hurt. So they don't get hurt, and so I don't get hurt. Absolutely. But to be honest with you, I don't want to tear my uniform. I don't want to get a scuff mark. That's the last thing I want to do. <laughs> the last thing we want to do. No doubt. No doubt. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So what do you, what do you like doing when you're not working? Well, now that you're not working, but what, what sort of things do you like doing? So probably about 10 years ago, I started hiking. Um, okay. So that's my thing now is to hike. Uh, I do play golf every once in a while, but I, I'm not really good at it. So that, I don't do that often. But uh, if I had to answer your question, hiking is, is my therapeutic uh, relaxation um, fun thing to do go hiking and then also taking my my big dog to the beach I, I, those are the two things i really enjoy what, what kind of dog is it belgian Malinois. remember i told wow. you i wanted to be a canine a canine yeah. handler and i never had that opportunity so i got my own belgian and i trained her and she's a wonderful wonderful dog very intelligent all right so I, t I try to take i try to take her a lot of places the beach the park hikes walks so 
and I've trained her to walk with me off leash. So she's a really, she's a really good dog. So, so I, I am my own canine handler. You're your own canine handler. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's up. Yes. So does she know how to do all the tricks when you, you know, when she's underneath your legs and you can walk and then she circles and you know, all the stuff the canine guys do? Not that, but I do have hand commands and I, I could use my hand and she knows how to sit, get up, stop without even saying anything. So if I take her on a walk on the trail, I'll tell her the hand command. I'll give her a hand command. She'll, she'll sit down. And then I back up about 50 feet. I'm holding my fist. And I don't say nothing. And then when I put my hand down, she'll come to me. So she knows nice. that she's got to stay until I put my hand down. So th- that's nice. about the, ex- the extent of, of which, what she can do. Uh, but the, the reason why I wanted the trainer was because I want to have the ability to go for a run or go for a walk and have her by, by me without a leash. And she's really, really good about doing that. That's awesome. And, and does your yeah. wife now, does she put on an agitator suit and, and <laughs> no, no, no. She learned that the hard way. Cause I have, yeah. I have ropes for the dog and I have a bite sock and I only, I'm the only one that can do that with her. And I told my wife, whatever you do, don't pick up that rope. And one day she picked up the rope and she found out the hard way. Oh yeah. Do, do, do they get along though? Does she... Oh, my wife loves that dog. That's, that's her baby. Uh, well, she, well, cause she, you know, two females and then they, they start getting that attached to, <laughs> to you sort of thing. And the dog, you know what I mean? She, she cooks a more elaborate, better dinner for that dog than she does for me. There you go. <laughs> she loves that. She loves that dog. And she's got a thousand pictures on her cell phone of that dog and only 10 pictures of me on her cell phone. Well, now we know so, where, the, where the loyalty lies. <laughs> yeah. They're bonded. They're bonded at the hip. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. All right, LT, I appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your, your fun knowledge with us today, but you're not done yet. Uh, like I told you, I got a little something here for you, and this is called. This is my Black Lightning round. I'm just going to throw some lightning questions for you, and then you throw some big lightning kind of questions, <laughs> I mean, answers back at me so we can get a little bit more insight into Lieutenant Leonard Perez. Okay. Are you ready for this? Let's go for it. Awesome. All right, so, all right, so Thanksgiving's coming up here pretty quick. At the time of this recording, what's your favorite Thanksgiving dish? Smoked turkey. Smoked turkey. Yeah, that sounds, mm, I'm hungry already. You, you ever fried a turkey? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. A lot no, of work, it's good, but I, I prefer the smoked turkey. Prefer the smoked turkey. slow smoked turkey. All right, all right. Uh, what movie or TV show uh, do you think has portrayed the lives of, of LAPD officers the most accurate Southland it's no longer on that was a good show that was a good Southland show. yeah definitely yep absolutely um so along that note what actor plays Lieutenant Leonard Perez in a movie about your life mm, almost Robert De Niro in uh, in Heat okay all right so Robert De Niro gets to play you. All right, cool, cool. Uh, your favorite patrol division? Wilshire Division. Wilshire. Why, why is that? Diversity. Um, it had very rich, middle income, and poor. And there was a lot of good places to eat over there. A lot of good things to do for people. Nice, nice. What, where, where is that for people that don't know? Wilshire Division, uh, the western uh, border would probably be the uh, La Cienega. To the north, it would probably be uh, Melrose Boulevard. Or no, uh, Beverly Boulevard to the north. To the south, uh, we're going in the southwest division, probably the 10 Freeway. And to the east, it would probably be a little bit west of Western Avenue. Because they changed the boundaries a little bit. Okay, so is that getting towards yeah, Beverly so, so, Hills? Getting towards Beverly Hills out that way. Borders Beverly Hills, Koreatown, uh, a little bit of MacArthur Park, and a little bit of uh, south uh, of the 10 Freeway. Gotcha, gotcha. So, what's on your playlist right now? What are you listening to? Uh, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. Okay. Lately, but music-wise. If you want to talk, uh, I'm uh, old school Earth, Wind, and Fire, Santana. Yes, yes. Uh, those those are good good jams to sit in the yard, do yard work, or just have a barbecue. There you go. There you go. Relax. What do you remember most about your time at the academy and as a rookie? My academy days was uh, the PT, 
PT was fun because it was, it was good camaraderie and you're actually working out and doing something good for your body. Yep. Kind of reminded me of my, my time in the military. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, if cops could be traded like uh, team athletes, what city would you mind not been uh, traded to during your career? What city? Um, I would have to be something warm and hot. Florida, uh, Corpus Christi, because I love the beach and the ocean. Okay, all right. So they trade you for a couple picks, and you're going to you go <laughs> go to Corpus Christi or, or Miami. Definitely. There you go. All right. What's the worst car you've ever owned? A 19, my very first car that I bought, my very first car that I bought in high school, a 1973 Buick Century, Burgundy, two door. <laughs> 1973, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I've been there, been there. Uh, what, what's a guilty pleasure for you? My guilty pleasure would probably be a, a slice of pie or a pudding. Okay, what what pie or pudding? Definitely. What, what apple, pudding? Cho- apple, apple or, or chocolate pudding. There yeah. You go. There you go. Um, favorite handgun you carried during your career? My favorite was my Glock, Glock forty. Okay, nice. Yeah, because I know uh, you go through LAPD went through a, a bunch of different uh, handgun changes periodically, right? Yeah, I came on with a Beretta, and then I went to a Smith forty five with six, which was a really heavy, and then I transitioned to the Glock forty, and I, the Glock was my favorite. Nice, nice. Yeah, I understand they. You guys just approved what was it, nineteen eleven or something like that, and a lot of guys are going. Nineteen eleven was only for was was only for SWAT initially, okay. and then and then they opened up department wide, right. but you had to go to the, the their class. Right, right. So so we piggy that my agency piggyback off of that, and uh, they they open it up to to our guys. You, you got to buy it yourself if you want it, but right, right, yeah, yeah. They're not going to issue. Yeah, it. I was. I mean, I mean, I was a I was a gunner on a small boat unit in the Navy. So I wasn't one of those gun guys like some of the some of the officers where they buy you know seven ten guns. So yep. um, I I had enough cleaning the guns in the navy. I'm like I don't, I don't need six guns. I'll just carry there one in the backup. That's all I need. There you Nothing go. else. That's it. All right, last one. So uh, tell the truth. Did you look good in uniform? I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> there you go. Especially especially with that cover on from LAPD. You know the hat, the round. Yeah. Yeah. That cover. Very distinctive, yeah, in uniform with that. Very, very distinctive, nice. yeah. LAPD's got a very distinctive uniform, which I was always kind of impressed or, or not so impressed, you know, depending on how you look at it, that you guys don't wear patches, except, you know, maybe your specialized traffic or whatever, you know. And, yeah, and, that's and it. I got that's a few it. buddies. I got a few buddies that work for LAPD, and, and, and their response to me was that everybody knows who we are, so. <laughs> yeah, we are, we are different without the patches. So, but that's the thing is the trade patches. Those are cool. Yeah, yeah. So too bad we, we, don't, we don't all have them. Yeah. Who, who so. gets to wear them? Is it traffic and who else? Traffic or if you wear the BDUs. Uh, if you wear BDUs, then you'll have a patch depending where you're assigned to. Metro, narcotics, canine, bomb squad. Yeah. There's probably a few that out there that have patches on their BDU uniforms. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Cool. All right, man. I appreciate that. That was fun. Got a little bit more insight into, you know, your guilty pleasures and who gets to play you in a movie <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, Dale, if, if I can give a shout out to one of my colleagues that uh, yeah. we lost uh, during COVID, uh, rest in peace to Anthony, Sergeant Anthony White, uh, um, great uh, mentor, great police officer, great sergeant, and uh, a, a huge loss for the department and for his family. So, uh, Anthony, you're up in heaven. Uh, miss your brother. Uh, rest in peace. And thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime I can uh, facilitate that, I'm all for that. And uh, you know, one thank more you, thing. Bro. One more thing before I get you out of here. How about some words of wisdom for the uh, viewers and the and the listeners? Yeah. So uh, the, all agencies, department wide, don't provide enough scenario based training. So open up your wallet. Uh, get out there and get that training. Uh, that training provides uh, mental slides and schemas in the ways when you're presented with a critical incident that you're pre- better prepared and you'll have a better outcome. And also uh, uh, pass along that olive branch, uh, pass that knowledge you have to the younger officers and help them out so that they're as successful as you are. And that's about it. Good deal. All right, LT, I appreciate you coming on. This is, this is good. Have some fun with you and uh, we'll talk soon. 
Dale, what a great experience and a great pleasure. And, and I'm very humbled. And thank you very much for the you opportunity. It. You got it. Enjoy the All rest right. of your day and, and the holidays coming up. Enjoy those. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you. Smoke, thank you very much. Smoke turkey. Smoke turkey. That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Especially the next the next day you make a sandwich out of it. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Have a All great right. day. Take yeah. care. Bye-bye. What? Now that was an outstanding interview. Thank you, Lieutenant Perez, for all you did throughout your career and sharing all of that with us. If you guys got some value out of this episode, let me know by leaving a comment in the section below and by clicking those like and subscribe buttons if you haven't done so already. If you listen to me on your favorite podcast platform, please rate the Black and Blue podcast five stars. I'll be back in a couple weeks with another banging episode just like this one. But till then, you already know. Stay black and blue. I'll holla at you. Deuces. This has been a Major D Entertainment presentation.